0: Thanks, Joe. I do have a couple of announcements as we get started here. Um, First is there is a question about the timing of the baptism. And I will give you something to watch other than the clock. Um, Roger, can you just raise your hand for a minute back there? That's Roger. And I'm Craig. Yeah, he is. Okay. The baptism will not happen without the two of us being at the Sutherland's. Um, We will leave immediately after services, and I let people know that for me, immediately after services may be different than for you, immediately after services, and head over to the Sutherlands, and so um, it will be directly following our services, but if you see Roger and you see me leave, you know 10 minutes later or so it's going to happen, but we do encourage you to come and to be a part of that that baptism uh, this afternoon, we do have issues with our heater, in the baptistry, which is why we're going to the, um, the Sutherlands. Uh, also, at 5 o'clock, we're going to have a kids-focused service uh, here tonight, celebrating the end of the school year for them. And we are going to be serving ice cream and possibly outdoor games. It just depends what the weather chooses to do um, with that. But encourage all of you who are able to be back at uh, 5 to be a part of that. We'd appreciate having you here uh, with us. Uh, you've probably heard uh, Robert Frost's poem, The Road Not Taken. I'm just going to share with us the first five lines. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both. And be one traveler, long I stood, and looked down one as far as I could, to where it bent in the undergrowth. In some ways, we are in a situation much like Robert Frost's character in this poem, where we recognize there are two roads. Uh, two pathways, and we are a single person, and so we have to choose a pathway that we're going to walk on and a pathway that we're going to follow. But as people of God, and for those of you who are a part of our services this morning, there is some good news. In, in this poem, the person could only look so far, and he couldn't see any further because of the undergrowth that was there. But we can see all the way to the very end of the destination of both paths. And we can know whatever choice we make, we can know exactly and directly where it will lead to. And So this morning, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 60 through 62, where we get a a picture of what happens at the end of things and what this pathway looks like. And so Isaiah chapter 60, beginning in verse 1, begins in this way, Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people. But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will appear over you. Nations shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your dawn. Isaiah sixty begins with the picture of a dark night. And I don't know if you've ever been somewhere where you've watched the sunrise, but that's what is being pictured here. And as you watch the sunrise, it has this moment where it transitions from being fully covered in darkness to, at first, a flicker of light. You see the sun as it just slowly begins to come over the horizon. And it starts to look at first just kind of like a a candle far off away. And then shortly, within moments, it turns into this full, shining, bright orb. In fact, it becomes so bright that no longer can you look at it anymore. And Isaiah is saying that there is a day where God's glory is going to rise just like the sun. And when God's glory comes, it will shine upon his people. And then God's people are going to function just like the moon. We know that the moon is not the source of its own light. The moon takes the light of the sun and it reflects it. And in the same way, what Isaiah is telling us is that God's people then are going to reflect his light. And the nations who are in darkness are going to look and they're going to see that light. Have you ever been in a place where it was pretty dark, near complete darkness, and you find a light and your natural instinct is I'm going to head towards that light. And what Isaiah is telling us is that this light that now shines on Zion will become a light that the nations will begin to come to. But then... Isaiah tells us they move from looking up to the glory of God. There's a movement. Now he says, lift up your eyes and look all around. And they all gather together and they come to you. Your sons shall come from afar. And your daughters shall be carried on their nurses' arms. When you shall see and be radiant, your heart shall thrill and rejoice. Because the abundance of the sea that is brought to you and the wealth of the nations shall come to you. So the people go from gazing upward, seeing the glory of God just like a rising sun, to now God says, now, direct your attention out. Look at what's happening beyond. And when they look beyond, they see nations of people coming, like a steady stream of people coming towards Zion. But when they come, they don't come empty-handed. Their hands are full. And the two things that we find that their hands are full with is, number one, that their, their sons and daughters are being brought home. And the others, they come carrying the wealth of the nations. Isaiah chapter 60, verses 6 through 9 and verse 13 will give us more details about what the wealth of nations looks like. There, there will be camels that are loaded with gold and frankincense coming from Midian and Epaphath and Sheba. There will be flocks of sheep and ram coming from Kedar and Neboeth. There will be ships from Tarshish bringing the children of Israel and the silver and gold. And from Lebanon will come costly wood of cypress and of plain and of pine trees. The nations are flowing, bringing their wealth with them. And so we put pause on this for just a moment. And, and one ask the question, well, is this literal or figurative? That often becomes a discussion when it comes to prophecy. I do like what J.I. Packer says when he says that, when you talk about God, many kinds of stretching of ordinary language must occur. That, that you think about how do you, how do you describe God and how do you describe what God's going to do, and you're limited by language, that's a pretty strong limitations. And so God will take ordinary language and will stretch it that it can point to these great and wonderful things that are being done. But I think what we find in Isaiah 60 through 62 will be this combination, a marriage of both literal things that are happening and also things that are, are pictures. Figure, figurative language that's used so for example think about the sons and the daughters returning home i mean what could this be illustrating well what often happens when war when nations are at war and one nation captures another they're going to take their sons and their daughters off into captivity into the land and so this there's this recognition you probably have heard the names shadrach meshach and abednego These three men of Israel who are carried off. And the book of Daniel tells us about their story. They're the sons and the daughters who have been taken into captivity. And what this is picturing is a time of reversal. Where those who have been carried off, they're now going to be brought back home again. And so it's a picture that's being painted. But then some people recognize when it talks of the wealth of the the nations. That there are certain things that seem very literally and specifically fulfilled in the New Testament talking about the wealth that is brought of frankincense and of gold, and that they will proclaim the, the Lord. And people will look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, where wise men come from the east, and they come and they want to worship Jesus, and they come bringing gifts of what? Of gold and of frankincense as a part of what is brought. And so we recognize these passages as a combination. But what all of these share in common, what the overall theme of this section is, is a reversal from all people. And the reversal will happen from the lowly will be lifted up, but those who are proud will be brought low. See, Israel has been surrounded by many nations more powerful than them. And because they've been surrounded by these larger nations um, who have... These economic resources, they've been able to build larger militaries. And Israel feels like a part of their history has been this constant dream of their sons and daughters going out to other nations, of their wealth being paid in tribute, of their their wealth being paid in taxes to other nations, that that's been the direction of the flow. And it's been a one-way street. And what Isaiah is saying is that there's going to be a reversal now of that movement, a reversal of those things instead of going out, To the foreign nations, the nations are going to now begin bringing things back for restoration to God's people. So the glorious day of the Lord, when it comes, it will reverse the direction of things. And it's key to recognize that it's a very specific kind of reversal of specific things. So I want us to go back to Isaiah chapter 2 and see if any of this sounds familiar. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty against all that is lifted up and high, against the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up. So why did Lebanon believe that they were something significant? Why did they believe they were something great? Because of the resources of their wealth. And they thought that because they had all of this stuff, they were somebody pretty important, and they could do whatever they wanted to do with the nations. And Isaiah says, there's a time when Lebanon, because of their confidence and pride, because of their cedars, they're going to be brought low. Well, here's Isaiah chapter 2, 16 through 17. Against the ships of Tarshish, against all the beautiful craft, the haughtiness of the people shall be humbled, and the pride of everyone shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. See, these nations were given things by God. They were blessed by God. Lebanon with the cedars. Tarshish with the ability to make boats. But instead of turning these things into thanksgiving for God, they looked at their blessings and they became proud and confident in themselves. The way that Paul describes it in Romans 1, he says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the created creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. So the very blessings God gives them, it becomes for them a source of pride. It becomes a source of their their own uh, confidence, their own riches, and their own wealth. And so a part of the reversal in Isaiah 60 involves the returning of all things and all nations to the use for what God intended them. So for Lebanon to bring its cedars back, they are recognizing once again, these are not their cedars, these are God's cedars. For Tarshish to come in the ships, it's recognizing once again, what has been the source of their pride needs to be brought low And that once again, they can return to God all the sources of his wealth. So recognize here what's being said of the ships of Tarshish in Isaiah 60, verse 9. For the coastlands shall wait for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from far away, their silver and gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God, and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. So what has happened here is these people who have been proud because of these resources have realized these resources are not for my glory. They should be intended for God's glory. So they're humbled and coming back to God and saying, what I have used as a source of my own glory, God, I give it back to you so that you can use it for your glory. Or recognize what happens with Lebanon. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you the cypress, the plain, and the pine to beautify the place of my sanctuary and I will glorify where my feet rest. This picture of reversal is a picture of all the things that have become the sources of pride being returned to God for his purposes. And I think in this we can find a lesson for our own discipleship. I mean, there are probably certain things that you have that other people don't have. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's an education, maybe it's wealth, maybe it's time, resources, maybe it's connections, maybe it's relationships, and those things, you can look at them and they can become for you a source of pride. I'm better than others because I have X, Y, Z. But what a disciple who has seen the glory of God does is they bring those things into the presence of God and they say, it's not for me, but it's to be used for you and it's to be used for your glory. When we encounter the glory of God, it brings us down. And all that we have is given for God and His glory. We're going to jump ahead to Isaiah chapter 2. And we'll recognize even there, there's this conversation about more reversals that are happening. You shall never more be termed forsaken. And your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her. And your land married. For the Lord delights in you. And the land in, and in the land you shall be married. There is this renaming that happens. And so I think the first thing we need to do is to make sure we recognize the difference between name changes in our culture and name changes when this was written. I think in our culture, name changes illustrate our personal freedom and our control. I mean, think about all the decisions that have to be made about names when a person gets married today. Is she going to take his name or is he going to take her name? Are one or the other of them or both of them going to just keep the names that they have? Is one of them going to choose to hyphenate their name? And so there's this whole recognition that by getting to choose what I do with my name is a sign of my own freedom. And my own autonomy to choose. I mean in this culture, even if you're not getting married, you can choose your name to match any kind of desire you want. So when Isser Danielovich moved from uh, Belarus to the United States, he wanted people to recognize he's, he's, a, he's blending into this new culture, and so he decided to change his name. And so Isser became Kirk, Danielovich became Douglas, and so that way whenever his son who became an actor, Michael Douglas, he could go around being Michael Douglas, not Michael Danielovich. It's a recognition of name changes, me controlling how I want to fit in and who I want to belong to. But that's not the case in how it works in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when a person is named, that name is often initiated by someone else who was considered a superior to you. So let's take the example I mentioned earlier, Belteshazzar, Hananiah, and Mishael, who when they arrived in Babylon, the palace master gave them new names. Those are the names we know, which are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it was that master's way of saying, you have a new identity and I am deciding who you are and what you will do and who you will be. And so here as God names his children, he is giving them a new identity. He's giving them something that they cannot get for themselves. God, the superior, renames the people. And God gives them this name, my delight is in her. And I think it's important as we think about identity and we think about names because we live in a day and age where we think that we get to choose what identity we will be. Where we think we get to choose what what we will look like and who we will be to the world. A guy named Henry Nowen once said that there's three identity lies that are told in America over and over again. And these are the three lies. Number one, I am what I have. Number two, I am what I do. And number three, I am what other people say or think about me. The right answer about who we are is, I am who God declares me to be. And I suspect if you take that to heart, God says, your name will be, I delight in her. It will probably take you a lifetime just to accept the name God gives you. Sometimes we look in the mirror and we say, well, that's not me. That's not my name. That's not my identity. But we recognize, and what Isaiah is telling us is the identity we have is not one we create, but it's one that we become who God declares us to be. So we stop once again for an interpretation interruption. So we wonder, well, have these words been fulfilled or not? Are they yet to be fulfilled? And there are some ways which this section of scripture, Isaiah 60 through 62, there are some ways in which they have been fulfilled or at least partially fulfilled in the New Testament. The clearest example would be in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. We're going to talk about this later, but where Jesus identifies himself as this person who we meet in Isaiah chapter 61. John chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, we are told that uh, Jesus is the light of all people, and he is the light that shines in the darkness, borrowing language from Isaiah chapter 60. We mentioned this already. Matthew, when he talks about these wise men coming, he talks about the gifts they come bringing as a sign that what was foretold is beginning to be fulfilled in and through Jesus. And there's also this uh, passage in Romans chapter 15, 25 through 27, that people will connect to this prophetic word. Paul says, At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem in a ministry to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to share their resources with the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So these are Gentiles who are now sending resources to the, to the Christians in Jerusalem. It says, they were pleased to do this. Indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in the spiritual blessings, they ought to be of service to them in material things. This is a way of showing Paul believes that what is happening in his ministry is a fulfillment of this language in these words of what Isaiah was talking about. And yet there is also this sense in the New Testament that some of the language that Isaiah shares is yet to be fulfilled. I'm just going to read this and I'm going to trust that you're going to be able to recognize there are some uh, pretty close relationships between what Revelation says. Seems very clearly to be boring. Something is coming that represents Isaiah. So Revelation 21:23, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of the Lord is its light and its lamp is the Lamb. Doesn't that sound like Isaiah 60:19? The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for the brightness shall the moon give, you, give light to you by night. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. What about the next verse? I, Revelation 21:24? The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring its glory into it. Doesn't that sound like Isaiah 63? Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn? Revelation 21:25 through 26: Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. People will bring into it the glory, uh, into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Compare that to Isaiah 60:11: Your gates shall always be open, day and night they shall not be shut, so that the nations shall bring you their wealth, and their kings will lead it into procession. And I hope that's enough to show you that what Revelation is saying. Some of the things Isaiah talked about, we are still waiting for the final culmination of all these things. And how and where and when will that happen? And that's what we're going to focus on in Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 59 ends with this uh, language. It says, and he will come into Zion as a redeemer. So when Isaiah 59 ends, we're looking for, we're anticipating a redeemer. And we're going to encounter that redeemer in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all those who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, The mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord to display his glory. So we anticipate a redeemer. We're introduced to that redeemer. But I think one of the keys as we try to interpret this is to understand the two sides and the two aspects of the redeemer in the Old Testament. We're probably most familiar with this first aspect of the redeemer who... Restores. This is the redeemer who uh, we would know as the kinsman redeemer. When a piece of property of the family is sold and another comes and takes it, the redeemer comes, purchases that property so it can remain in the family. When a slave is sold and that individual is in slavery, the redeemer is going to come and he's going to take that person in slavery and bring them to to a restoration of their life. So the Redeemer pays a price to restore and reverse the fortunes of a person. And so we see that in Isaiah 61, don't we? That that the lowly are lifted up, that, that the brokenhearted are healed, that there's liberty to the captives. All of that is the work of this Redeemer who restores. But in the Old Testament, there is also another Redeemer, and that is the blood Redeemer. We'll find them in a couple of places in Scripture, but in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 11, the blood redeemer's responsibility is if you have a family member who has been killed by someone, and even if that, that individual flees, the blood redeemer must track down that person so they can serve the justice for the wrong that they have done. Because ultimately, redemption is about making right all of the things that have been made wrong. And how do you make things right when they are made wrong? Well, those who are bowed low, how you make that right is you restore them to a position of greatness. How do you make things right when a person is exalted in in nothingness? They have to be brought low to know where they really belong. And I think Isaiah chapter 61 verse 2 acknowledges these two roles of the Redeemer. Number one, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's the ministry of the Redeemer who restores. But he's also to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. And that's the ministry of the blood redeemer. And it's interesting if you're familiar with Luke chapter 4 verses 18 and following. That Jesus reads this passage of scripture. He says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And at that point he stops reading. Jesus does not say anything about the day of vengeance of our God. And the thing that we want to explore and to recognize is why is that the case? God took what people were expecting. A single day to proclaim the year of favor and the day of vengeance in a single day. God has broken that into two days. And those two days are associated with the two comings of Jesus. What we are going to find is that the first coming of Jesus proclaims the day of favor for people. That's what Jesus' earthly ministry was about was about the, the favor of God has fallen upon you. And we will find, in fact, that the day of vengeance does come, but it does not come for the wrongdoers. The day of vengeance, God's vengeance is poured out on Jesus himself. So the ultimate irony is that people get very upset with Jesus because he does not proclaim the day of vengeance because the, the Jewish listeners believe the Gentiles are the ones who are going to deal with the day of vengeance, but if God had brought the day of vengeance at that moment, they would have been the people who were subject to God's vengeance because of their pride, because of the ways that they worked against God. Well, why wouldn't God bring these two days in one? Well, 2 Peter three nine says that God is patient with you, not wanting any of you to perish, but all to come to repentance. So God gives time before there is the day of vengeance. But rest assured, coming with the second coming of Jesus, we will find that will be a day of favor for those who are followers and disciples of Jesus. But when Jesus comes again, he will also bring with him what? That's when the day of vengeance comes for all of those who reject and all of those who turn away from God. Here's the language in John five twenty-two through 23. The Father judges no one, But has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So the second coming of Jesus will be the day that he brings that vengeance. So the gift of Isaiah chapter 60 through 62 is the gift of knowing what happens at the end of these two roads. For one, it will be a day of deliverance. It will be a day of salvation. It will be a day of the favor of God. But for those who choose their own pride, their own glory, their own self-exaltation, and they reject God's Son, we're told that that will be a day of vengeance. A day where God brings upon people the very things that they deserve for their life. And my prayer is that as you're hearing these words and as you're seeing where these two pathways lead, that you would choose to walk in the road that leads to the day of God's favor. Once our services are done here, I've mentioned this already, uh, Roger's going to be baptized. He could use some company. If there's a recognition here, I want to choose to walk in the way uh, of God's blessing. I want to choose to make sure that God receives the glory in my life. There's going to be an opportunity for anybody who wants to come to give their life, to be baptized so that they will know that they will receive the favor and the blessing of God. That's my hope. That's my prayer. That as many of us as possible choose to walk in the way of God. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be glorious to you. Be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We're going to stand and sing a song. And if you uh, need anything, I invite you to come to the back. Find either myself or one of the elders. Let's stand and sing together.